From the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, this is the Parsha Pathways Podcast. Dive in to the weekly Torah portion led by rabbis local to Florida's Gulf Coast, Pinellas Pasco, and Hernando Counties. Participate live every Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash Parsha to learn more. I like how you said Parsha of the Week, you know, because I'm thinking about my kids watching a lot of Sesame Street in the house. I still have I have my two-year-old and even my eight-year-old watches it. So think, what's the Parsha? The Parsha of the Week. You know, it's also, what's the number of the day or the letter of the day? So clap, clap. It's the Parsha of the Day. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, it's wonderful to see everybody uh, and get a chance to study a little Torah together. Kiti Sa. One of my favorites, because uh, we get the ha- the uh, story of the golden calf uh, this week, a really profound and very interesting story. And, you know, it always feels a little bit jarring, I feel like, when I read this Torah portion, because, like, we're just out of Egypt. Like, we're just there, you know, and we had these miracles and these uh, wonderful occurrences that were free and we're happy. And the first thing we do is we're kvetching and complaining. Then Moses is five minutes late, you know, now we're building a golden calf right away. And so it is, I think, a very interesting story. Tells us a lot, I think, about human nature. And we're going to focus today on the concept of responsibility, of accountability, uh, and how leaders uh, react, you know, and how their reactions can then influence uh, the people that are following them. And so that's going to be our greater topic today. And so we're going to look at the question of responsibility when it comes to the creation of said golden calf. So what I'm going to do is share my screen and should it all work according to uh, it's as it should. Huzzah! Parshat Kitisa, Lessons in Responsibility. Uh, and so I think we all know, you know, the story of the golden calf, but Good to have a little review anyway, uh, I always say. And so we have here the beginnings of the tale. Uh, and, you know, as I as I like to do, I think everyone here has studied with me before, you know, that if your camera is on, I'm going to assume that I can call on you to read a little bit. Uh, and even if it's off, perhaps I might try to bother you anyway. But if your camera is on, uh, I'm certainly going to give you a chance to read a little bit. You're going to hear a lot from me, so it's nice to hear your voices as well, you know, as we study together. Uh, and so, uh, Leslie, would it be okay if I uh, ask you to read this first part here? Okay. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a guide who shall go before us. For that fellow Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So Aaron said to them, you men, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold, and he made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron announced, 
Tomorrow shall be a festival of the eternal. Early next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose to dance. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, this isn't going to end well uh, for the people. Uh, you know, that's not going to be uh, a great thing. Obviously, God is less than amused. Uh, and so Moses is going to be, you know, he's still on the mountain talking to God and God sees this. And God and Moses have a conversation uh, about perhaps, you know, doing a little bit of the, you know, the, sort of the dry erase on the whiteboard, sort of wiping out all the people and starting over uh, with Moses. And Moses, of course, gets God to renounce uh, this punishment, you know, through a little bit of bargaining, a little bit of a negotiation. Uh, and then Moses comes down, you know, and then there are uh, consequences uh, for what happens here. Uh, and it really is a very shocking sort of moment. But it happens. And the question is, why does it happen? Or better said, whose <laughs> fault is it? You know, who are we blaming for this disaster? So we must examine together the text and examine some stories and to try to discover who is at fault here. Who can we blame for this Shanda, for this atrocious incident? Who uh, gets the blame? First of all, not that there's a lot of text to it, but you know, Moses, don't be late. You know, people are waiting for you. There's a schedule here. Maybe set the alarm clock a little earlier. It's fine. Get down off the mountain. You know, people are waiting. You know, but that's more of a tongue-in-cheek, you know, aside, I'm not going to blame Moses too much. But when we have an appointment, it's always good to be on time. A little PSA, just generally speaking. You know, don't keep people waiting. It's not nice. Uh, so we can sort of give Moses a little, little hand slap for that. But Moses, of course, was not around at the time. Our next subject, the mixed multitude. Okay, so uh, we're going to see... Who's here? Steve, would you mind giving that a read for me? Sure. At the end of 40 days, there gathered 40,000 that had come up with Israel, together with two of Egypt's magicians. It was they who performed all those acts of witchcraft in Pharaoh's presence. As, it, as is said, they also, the magicians of Egypt, did in like manner with their secret arts. All of them gathering against Aaron and said, Moses will not come down again. Aaron and Hur responded, any moment he will be coming down from the mount. But the mixed multitude paid no attention to them. Oh, thank you for that, Steve. So the idea being that it's not really the Israelites' fault. It's the interlopers. Like it's those who left out of Egypt with them because it wasn't just the Israelites who left, it was other people as well, including a couple Egyptian magicians and some other folks that were there that also wanted to be free. It's a nice sort of finger point uh, and say it wasn't really the Israelites' fault. They were corrupted, you know, from the inside, sort of the bad apple, you know, that spoils the, the, the bunch or whatever it is. The idea being that it's, again, so it's not the Israelites who have the problem. It's this mixed multitude. It's really a lesson on, um, on peer pressure and about sort of the power that people might have to influence us. So the idea being that we have these 40,000, and according to tradition, it was like 600,000 Israelites who left uh, Egypt. But this 40,000, not even 10% of the population, had the ability 
to influence, disturb, uh, and, and corrupt uh, the Israelites uh, because they got upset. They all got riled up when Moses didn't show up. Uh, and they sort of spread bad reports and rumors and, and fear throughout the community, which influenced the Israelites to make a very poor decision, uh, right? And, and so that's what we see, I think, with this finger pointing at the mixed multitude, that they are the ones to blame. It's it's a way to get the Israelites themselves uh, off the hook, you know, for this misdeed that we can blame other people. It's not always the, you know, the best answer. You know, one can say that the mixed multitude here is perhaps being scapegoated, you know, because they aren't the Israelites, uh, which is, I don't think that's really the, the best reaction, of course, when we find ways to scapegoat and blame others, uh, you know, for for the problems of the community. You know, usually, you know, we, we have this idea of communal responsibility and everyone has sort of their free will. So these 40,000 people uh, now are sort of being blamed for the entire incident uh, of what happened with the golden calf. Any questions so far? Sort of thoughts? We are good then to move on from the mixed multitude. Now we're gonna have a little fun because it's good to have fun with Midrash. And I will point out a lot of these are of course Midrashic stories and interpretations. They aren't from the Bible, you know, but they're the rabbis trying to understand what to make of this whole situation. And so this is sort of their interpretation, storytelling uh, to teach uh, a lesson or two, or frankly, just to have a little bit of fun. Oh no, it's Satan. You know, so somehow Satan, not Satan, of course, Satan gets blamed for some of this as well. This is a brief little back step. Uh, Satan, we get a few times in the Bible, um, image of an adversary, sort of a um, provocateur, uh, someone who sort of needles, pokes uh, the divine, uh, or, or can somehow come to influence people in a negative way. It isn't the same as the Christian conception of the devil with the red and the, the hooves and the pitchfork and the fire. That's not what we're talking about here. That comes... To be fair, a Christian midrash, so to speak, they sort of take this idea and they create a whole theology around it. Uh, but but for our purposes, all it really means is sort of a no good nick, sort of a, someone who's coming down to stir it up and make trouble. And so they say that Satan arose and showed the Israelites the likeness of his beer on the mountain. Beer meaning the uh, it's a wooden sort of platform that they would place a, a body on, to place somebody uh, who is deceased on it, and it was mobile, it was portable to get them where they needed to be. Uh, and so it was Moses's beer, of course, you know, on the mountain. And so they believed that he was dead and it was pointless to wait. And so Satan comes and tricks them and says, look, there, he's Mo it's Moses and Moses is gone. And so this again, absolve some of the other folk from any responsibility when we were tricked, uh, you know, by this influencer, by this uh, sort of malevolent uh, actor that we have sometimes in, in the Bible and, and more often, of course, in rabbinic literature uh, later. Satan is most um, remembered in the Bible in the story of Job, where Satan argues with God and says, hey, you know, there's Job down there, he's so happy. He wouldn't be so happy if you didn't give him so much. And God says, okay, let's, you know, let's have a game here out of poor Job's life. You know, and Job gets uh, a lot of trouble 
uh, to him due to this little argument between God uh, and Satan. Uh, but so Satan again occasionally pops up in rabbinic literature as just a, an antagonist, you know, a way to create a, a story. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, we're going to follow the next one, my favorite out of the bunch. Uh, God. Somehow God can bear responsibility for this whole thing. It seems very antithetical. You know, how can God bear any responsibility? But I found a little Midrashic story, and it amused me. I thought maybe it would amuse you as well. Uh, Beth Kaplan. Beth, would you like to read a little bit? Sure. Okay. Let, <clears throat> let not your anger, O eternal blaze, forth against your people whom you delivered from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why did Moses mention the Exodus from Egypt? Because Moses was pleading, master of the universe, whence did you bring them? Was it not out of Egypt where they worship calves? The aptness of Moses's plea will be understood by the parable of a sage who opened a perfume shop for his son in the red light district. Okay, so now we're getting a little PG-13 as a, as a little just note <laughs> here, okay? Uh, you know, this is, gets a little bit for mature audiences, uh, but, but please go ahead. <laughs> the street piled, plied its trade. The perfume business plied its trade and the lad, like any young man, plied his natural inclination. When the father came and caught him with a prostitute, he began to shout, I'll kill you. But the sage's friend was there and he spoke up. You yourself ruined your son and now you're yelling at him? You ignored all other occupations and taught him to be a perfumer. You ignored all other streets and deliberately opened a shop for him in the red light district. Okay, so we sort of sort of see where this is going. Thank you for that. Uh, we have a little more on the next page to finish it up. But this is the idea, right, that God is angry, right? God's angry at the Israelites for this great misdeed, this great sin. And Moses is like, well, wait a minute, God, where were we the past, you know, a couple hundred years? We were in Egypt, and Egypt, they worship calves. And so it's like this story uh, of, of the sage, right? The sage says, you know what, son? Maybe studying Torah, not so much for you. Maybe it's not your thing. You know, all, out of all the other worldly occupations, you know, that are out there, he said, you know what? How about you become a perfumer in a not so savory time and place? Sort of imagine Times Square before it got Disneyfied. You know, it's like, you know, you have sort of those areas, those neighborhoods of ill repute, let's say. You know, uh, it, it's early in the morning. We're going to try to, you know, keep it uh, above board, right? So we have this idea then of, of this son being put in this position where there was going to be a problem, right? You know, like, like this was going to be an issue that. He, by just the nature of his industry of what he's doing and him being a young man and coming into contact with these women who um, buy the perfume and then they go out to solicit other gentlemen, you know, this young man is there and is going to come in contact with. Uh, and then, as it says here, his natural inclination sort of takes over 
And the father's upset. What are you doing? You know, dallying with these uh, women of the night, so to speak. Well, well why is this sort of happening? Uh, and he's really angry at his son and, and really threatens him. But the sage says, what are you doing? This is your fault. You put him there. You know, you, know, you, you put him in the situation where he was going to have a problem, where there was going to be some significant negative repercussions from him being in this area. You know, it, it, so it's not the son's fault. The son's going to do what he's going to do. It, it, it's, it's only natural uh, that this situation is going to unfold in this way. It's like if I take, you know, as I have a, a two-year-old, you know, and so if I am there and I leave him unsupervised with a box of donuts, it's going to have a bad end. You know, he's too, he's going to dive right into it. It's going to be really uh, intense. And then he's going to be all sugared up. He's not going to go to sleep. Uh, he's going to get all cranky on a sugar crash. This is all very foreseeable things in that, uh, in that circumstance. And I'm sure we can think of others, perhaps in our lives or in our own lives, where there is uh, temptation, you know, and a situation that, if we are in, you know, someone that that we love, you know, is in that we know, it's not going to be uh, a good circumstance. It's not going to be a good ending. And so, doesn't God bear some responsibility as it finishes up here? You know, Moses says, you know, Master of the Universe, you could have put us anywhere, right? You ignored the entire world and you put us in Egypt. Like that was sort of our, you know. Uh, our, our fate. You, you put us in the land of Egypt to be enslaved and all these Egyptians are worshipping calves. And so now your children learn from the Egyptians and now they made a calf for themselves. How can you be surprised? Therefore Moses said, you have brought forth in the land of Egypt. Remember God, remember what you did. What kind of place you brought them forth because this is part of your responsibility. You helped create the circumstance where this would be the ending. If anyone remembers the um, anti-marijuana commercial uh, in the 80s, you know, where the father confronts the son, like, where did you learn this? I learned it by watching you, dad. I learned it by watching you. You know, like, you know, it's not great when we have these, when we create these circumstances where there's gonna be a negative repercussion. And in this case, you know, for the Israelites, the idea is perhaps if they were somewhere else, you know, if, if they were um, perhaps not enslaved at all or enslaved in a place maybe there, where there wasn't as much idol worship, it wouldn't have influenced, impacted them negatively. Are we not sometimes a product of our circumstances? You know, as much as we can try to avoid them, sometimes things happen in our lives, situations that we are in that give us, that influence us and impact us, you know, sometimes for the good, sometimes less good. And this is less good. This is not great. And so I just find it fascinating that the rabbis found found some way to, you know, give God a little zets here, you know, uh, as well when it comes to who's to blame for the sin of the golden calf. Yeah, it's easy to blame Satan. It's easy enough to blame the mixed multitude. You know, uh, we even sort of busted Moses a little bit for being late. But to actually point the finger, it's very chutzpahdik to point the finger at God a little bit and say, hey, God, you know, chill out. You know, maybe uh, if you did this differently, we would have had a different result. But nonetheless, here we are. We got the calf and now we have to deal with it. So let's, you know, figure this out together in a different way than wiping out all the people. 
uh, which is which is God's inclination at this point to say, you know what, we're going to start over. We remember, you know, from from the Torah, you know, that we had the Adam and Eve story, temptation, right, and responsibility. Whose fault is it? You know, Adam says, ah, it's Eve's fault. Uh, you know, Eve says it's the snake's fault. You know, and then we're still we still have the problem, right? And God says, okay, this Garden of Eden thing, that's over. We're going to move on to the next phase of existence. Noah, you know, Noah and the ark doesn't end well then either, right? All the people are wicked. It's a problem. God says, okay, we're wiping the slate clean again. You know, now we're going to Abraham. Abraham, we found a winner. You know, Abraham is able to sort of be a righteous person, cares about other people. He's the one who gets to, to lead the people forward uh, and to be the um, progenitor, you know, the, the ancestor that we sort of that that's our linear ancestor is Abraham, right? That Abraham is the the first one, uh, you know, our first patriarch. And so now, hundreds of years later, God is like, you know what? Maybe we need another do-over. Maybe we need to wipe the slate clean again, and we'll just start with Moses and Moses's family, Moses's kids, and wipe out everything that came before. And Moses says, no, not the way to be. Can't do it. You know, we had this problem. Uh, it's not great. Uh, but we 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 all maybe bear a little bit of guilt here, so maybe let's you know not overreact or at least you know do something from which we can't come back from. Uh, and so God, of course, then uh, relents. And so this midrash sort of points that out: this idea that you know what, maybe we're all in it a little bit. Maybe we're all a little bit responsible, including God, for this disaster area of a uh, experience for the Israelites. With that said, now we get to the main event of our evening or of our afternoon, so to speak. We get to Aaron. Uh, and Aaron is the one who traditionally takes a lot of the lumps for this experience because he's left in charge, right? Dad's out, you know, uh, you know he, he's out on, up on the mountain. The babysitter's there and uh, it's not great. Uh, Aaron does not do a good job of uh, of minding the farm uh, while Moses is away. And so the Bible, I would say, as we read this part of the Torah, so, you know, I think Aaron takes some some good lumps from the, the biblical author. Uh, and so that's why I think he himself does uh, traditionally bear uh, a lot of the responsibility. But we're going to examine this uh, in, in a little greater detail, of course, as well. So, Aaron, uh, Bev, you want to read a little bit uh, here for us for uh, the, the, the Torah's perspective? Do you remember my maiden name is Aaron? I did not. See, it's perfect timing then. It's great. Yeah. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do that you have brought them such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, let not my Lord be enraged. You know that this people is bent on evil they said to me make us a god to lead us for that fellow moses the man who brought us from the land of egypt we do not know what has happened to him so i said to them whoever has gold take it off they gave it to me and i held it into the fire and out came this calf moses saw that the people were out of control since aaron had let them get out of control so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them. That's right. Thank you for that, Bev. 
So we can see right away, right? Who's Moses pointing the finger at? <laughs> Aaron, what's your problem? What did you do? You know, like I'm gone for five minutes. It was 40 days. But, you know, I'm gone for a little while. Take a little vacation, get up on the mountain, you know, talk to God, get all these really cool commandments, you know, nice spiritual sacred moment. I take my eye off the ball. And it's a balagan. It's all everything is going crazy. It's a mess. What's what's happening here? Aaron, of course, feeling a little defensive. You know, he's not so thrilled with getting all this, you know, blame. He says, Don't, don't be mad at me. It's the people. These people are out of their mind. So he's throwing them well under the bus, you know, to to blame the people. Uh, that that it's their attitude, it's their negativity, it's their mishigas that is to blame. Uh, so it gives him a abridged version of the story. Um, and then this is the money line. It's one of my favorite lines in the entire Torah. Uh, they gave it to me and I hurled it into the fire and <gasps> out came this calf as if it's by magic, you know, like, like it's almost like it appeared out of nowhere. When we know that Aaron, of course, helped mold and shape and create it. But the idea being that somehow, just by magic, it was a David Copperfield, David Blaine moment uh, where the gold gets thrown in and the calf jumps out. The calves jump. I don't think they jump. Lope. I think they sort of walk, I guess. The calf comes out uh, of the of the fire uh, and it is there in all of its golden idolatrous splendor. Uh, and so then, you know, Moses, uh, just sort of moves on from that explanation, like, oh, Aaron, just, oh my God. Uh, and then he has to turn around to deal with the people because they are out of control and the biblical author can't help but get a little nudge in a little extra little zets since Aaron had let them get out of control, you know, so the Bible, you know, the Torah portion is certainly pointing the finger at good old Aaron here. And let's remember, Aaron, you know, is going to get a lot of kavod later, right? He's going to become the high priest. Um, but this is sort of a black mark on the resume. Like, he doesn't want this out on his CV. When he asks for a reference, you know, sort of later, this is not going to be the moment uh, to look back on proudly. You know, this is going to be what was your greatest, you know, disappointment, perhaps. So Aaron uh, does get the brunt uh, of the blame here. And again, as I said, Aaron tries to push it off. But because we know Aaron is going to become the high priest, because we know that Aaron is Moses's brother, and because we know that, you know, he's going to be a big muckety-muck, he's a mocker, you know? Uh, so the rabbis sort of look at this text and sort of say, well, you know, wait a minute. Aaron is going to be an important dude. You know, he's just someone that, that we have to sort of look to uh, as uh, as a, um, I'll say role model, but, he, but he's going to be certainly an important figure sort of in our story. So is there any way we can help Aaron out a little bit? Can we absolve him a little bit of this whole problem? Is there a way to exonerate him and not make him the one that is sort of fully responsible for this whole disaster uh, that happened with the golden calf. So the rabbis say, you know what? Let's find some different ideas in the text. And maybe we can sort of pull out and create an interpretation that gives Aaron a little bit more leeway here. It's a little bit kinder uh, to Aaron. 
And so in addition to, as we just read earlier, some different interpretations that place the blame on other folk as well, they find a way to sort of give Aaron a little bit more, cut him a little bit of slack because he is in a tough situation. How tough is it? So mitigating circumstance number one. Uh, Jackie, can you unmute there and give me a little read? Hi, I'm Maxine Kaufman, Executive Director of the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast. And I'm quickly interrupting this episode to tell you a bit about the organization that brings you the Parsha Pathways podcast. Welcome to the world of the Jewish Federation, where the Jewish values of compassion, charity, generosity, and responsibility inspire us to improve the quality of life for people in our community, in Israel, and around the world every day. It is time to meet the challenges of modern Jewish life, both at home and overseas, and to provide the financial resources needed to fund the many services, programs, and activities that are demanded of us to sustain and continue to grow a strong, vital, and vibrant Jewish life. Programs like Parsha Pathways are brought to you free of charge, but donations are always welcome. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash donate to learn more. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, before it. What did he actually see? Rabbi Benjamin says, in the name of Rabbi Eleazar, he saw Hur lying slain before him and said to himself, if I do not obey them, they will now do unto me as they did unto her. And so will be fulfilled. Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of God? And they will, oh, I'm sorry, my eyes are bad today. And they will never find forgiveness. Better let them worship the golden calf, for which offense they may yet find forgiveness through repentance. Oh, thank you for that. We're going to unpack that a little bit, but nice to see you, Jackie. Thank you for giving that a read. So let's unpack this for a second. So they're going to take this verse, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So traditionally speaking, that's traditionally, when we read the actual biblical text, the idea is when Aaron saw the calf, right, he built an altar before it. Not great for Aaron. Again, on a plain sense reading, the calf is there and it's like, okay, let's build an altar. It's time to have a party. You know, it's going to have, we're going to have a big old barbecue. There's going to be line dancing. There's going to be singing songs. There's going to be eating some good food. And of course, drinking some good drink. You know, we'll do that tomorrow. It'll be fantastic. Not a great look for Aaron. Doesn't really feel great. So the rabbi say, well, wait a minute. Maybe Aaron saw something different. He didn't just see the calf. He saw something else. And so Rabbi Benjamin says in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, what he saw was Hur. And Hur is dead. Now, of course, we have to say, who is this guy? Is that a random? Have this extra dude here being dead? You know, like, like who is this guy? So this guy, Hur, is seen as, uh, according to rabbinic literature, a prophet. And potentially, depending on which Midrash you read, 
uh, it's Miriam's husband. And so Miriam, according to a couple different texts, has a couple different husbands. Uh, but this is one of them. You know, the idea was that this is uh, Aaron's brother-in-law at this point is now dead. And this is a man of great repute in the community. Uh, he's seen as a, pro a prophetic voice because Miriam is a prophet as well, who is seen as a prophetic voice. And now, you know, he's dead because he had tried to stop them, to stop the people from building the calf. And so, you know, he was sort of the hall monitor. You know, we're running too fast here. We're, you know, no, no more horseplay, you know, quit out the rough stuff. And so he's trying to maintain some kind of order. And what do the people of Israel do? They kill oh. him. They kill him. That's it. Yeah, so that's it for him. So Aaron's not loving his odds, is what I'm saying here. Aaron's sort of taking a, a view of the whole picture and saying, I got to say, this doesn't look good. Because if I stand up and I speak out and I say, don't do this, I'm going to be lying next to Hur, you know, and that's going to be a problem. So, and then, but he said not only for himself, that's, that's where this Midrash gets really interesting. It's not about himself here, though one would not blame him for thinking that, you know, self-preservation is a pretty important aspect, right? Like we don't want to create a, a situation where we can come to harm. And so we wouldn't blame him if that was his motivation, but he said that's actually not his motivation, that it is that if they kill me and they kill this guy, they're killing both a prophet and a priest, basically. And if they do that, if the Israelites were to commit that great sin, it's, you know, taking it from lamentations, if, the, if we're going to commit such a terrible atrocity, the people of Israel will never be forgiven, you know, for committing these two murders, you know, uh, of, of Hur and then himself. So, again, cost-benefit analysis. It's better for them to worship the golden calf because they could say, I'm sorry for that the next day, you know, when, when Moses comes down and Moses waves a stern parental fing, uh, finger at them. They can make teshuva, you know, they can do teshuva, they can get some sense of repentance and be forgiven for this idolatry. Uh, but if they were to commit these uh, acts of violence, then perhaps they, there would be no forgiveness for such a, a, a violent um, uprising. Uh, to 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 murder both of these people, the whore and uh, and himself, and so again he says, you know what, better to worship the calf today uh, and be alive tomorrow. Uh, you know, so one one can maybe uh, understand the wisdom there that you can come back from it. You can come back from the from the calf. Uh, I think in his own uh, his own perception, his own perspective, that you can get forgiven for the idolatry but for the murder less so uh it, it's not gonna work so a little fear that aaron has some again very uh, understandable fear that he will not survive you know standing up to this crowd and again that fear for the people that they that, that they will not be able to come back from from such an act okay so that is our first mitigating circumstance but we have some more uh, to, to, to look at here. Maxine, you want to give a little read here? Sure. <clears throat> when Aaron saw how things stood, he was afraid and attempted to distract them with subterfuges. Thus he said, break off the golden rings, which are in the ears of your wives. A difficult request to execute, 
since the wives were likely to balk. Indeed, when the men went to their wives, they did balk. They, the wives, defied them, the husbands, saying, God forbid that we should make an idol and betray the Holy One. Who wrought such miracles and mighty deeds in our behalf? So since the wives refused, all the men, all the men among the people broke off the golden rings, which were in their ears, their own ears. Thank you for that. We're going to unpack that a little bit since this is a fun midrash as well. And actually, by the way, and we'll, and we'll get to it, I don't want to bury the lead too much, but it creates a fantastic theological argument uh, that the Orthodox still use today, but we'll get to that in one second. First, we'll just deal with the actual Peshat, the interpretation right here, uh, the, the simple one. So Aaron is trying to procrastinate a little bit and do a little bit of manipulating in his way break off the golden rings, all these ears, uh, all these earrings, which in the ears of your wives, thinking the wives aren't going to give them the earrings. We like our jewelry. You know, it's a nice to have. It's going to go in a different direction, but that's the sort of the plain sense is that, you know, we get attached and men do too, to be fair. But, you know, this, this is a midrash that's written a while ago, but in their perception, oh, we like our shiny things, we like our earrings and our jewelry. We wouldn't want to give that up, you know, to create a, uh, an, an idol here. And it actually gives um, the, the, the the wives here, it actually, it boosts them up because it isn't the reason. I think in the beginning, it's sort of how it reads a little bit is that, you know, no woman wants to give up her jewelry kind of thing. It's a little sexist, but it actually takes a turn in the second half of this because it, it's, it's not about that, about like, you know, you gave this to me on our anniversary. Like, like it, it's not that. It's that they are have a sense of spirituality and connection that is different than their husbands do how well, we could never even think to worship an idol to betray you know god all these miracles right they're the reasonable rational ones they're the ones who are spiritual and have that connection you know to god where the men are behaving badly to put it mildly you know uh and they aren't really using their, their their thinking caps here they're having uh they're giving into this temptation where the women are saying no this is not right uh and so the wives refuse and so according to this tradition the women never give their jewelry and it's never taken from them it's the men who have their jewelry on you know their different you know earrings and whatever finery they're wearing and they break those off and they throw those into the fire and the women never give up their their gold interesting is that what the, you were saying so uh, in relation to modern um orthodoxy most in my opinion in my uh experience orthodox men don't wear jewelry they don't wear jewelry uh, but even it but even goes even greater. It, it becomes an argument about mitzvot, uh, one that I don't actually buy, but it's an argument they make anyway. Uh, so we know in in Jewish tradition, you know, through Talmud and through halachic codes, you know, the legal codes that are developed by Maimonides and Jacob and Asher, and you know, throughout the years, Shulchan Aruch, all these things get created. And they basically say there are two kinds of mitzvot. There are positive mitzvot, positive time, positive time bound mitzvot, and sort of the negative mitzvot, as in the thou shalt not. So you have the thou shalt and thou shalt not. The thou shalt nots 
apply to everybody, right? You know, men, women, you know, anyone above the age of 13, thou shalt not, you can't do, you know, and that's for everybody. But the ones that are the positive time-bound mitzvot, meaning that it's a thou shall do something at a certain time, and that is a mitzvah, women are exempt from those mitzvot. Not prohibited, exempt, means they don't have to do it. So, for example, you know, you, we have these stories, these the legal codes about women can't read Torah, you know, or not, again, don't have to, aren't, um, again, it's not about being prohibited, they're exempt from blowing the shofar, you know, from doing all these different sort of things, these ritual acts, they don't have to do it. Why? Because they are on a higher spiritual plane than men. We are lower, so we need them. You know, in order to get to the higher level where the women are, because the women at the time of the golden calf, they wouldn't give up their jewelry. They wouldn't give up and they, they would never even think, God forbid, to stray from God's teachings and laws and to worship an idol. Like they would never think of it. It's just us men who are weak and we have, you know, the, the ability to go astray and give into temptation. So we need all of those positive time bound mitzvot in order to reach the level of women and to that i say it's a terrible oh. argument uh, i mean women can be very spiritual i don't mind that at all but i think we all you know men women you know whoever wants to blow a shofar should blow a shofar you know to wave a lulav to wear a talis you know to wear to fill in you know whatever we want to do i believe in right, so they have, they're able to but they if they don't want to they are exempt Yes, but they, you know, you're 100% right. But the issue is how it's perceived. Because when the women wear a towel to the Western Wall, they get rocks thrown at them. <laughs> so, you know, and so that, that doesn't look great, you know. So that that's sort of what, what we see is that the, from not having to do it to being prohibited from doing it, that has changed, I would say, in like a, in, in you know 1,500, 1,000 years from the original intention, right, uh, of the text is that we have the, you know, but and this is one of the stories that is cited, you know, for that idea of, of why they don't have to do it, which again, it sounds nice in theory, right? It sounds nice. I like it. It's complimentary. It's one of the few sometimes Talmudic stories that is overly complimentary uh, toward, towards women. It's a nice thought. I just say that, you know, eh, I don't buy it. You know, let's, you know, let's all do mitzvot together, uh, you know, that, that we want. Because Maxine is right. You know, it's, it's not about, like, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do everything, you know. But uh, if you want to do it, you should be able to do it with full energy and full voice and full-throatedness. Uh, I think it's a good thing. Gender roles get us again. Okay. Mitigating circumstance number three. Uh, let's see who is here that I haven't bothered yet. Anyone? Kara, you, you want to read a little bit or are you working hard over there? I can read. Oh, thank you. And when Aaron saw this calf, he built an altar before it. The people wanted to build it with him, but he said, allow me to build it myself. It is not in keeping with the respect due to the altar that others build it with me. Aaron's intent in the time it will take me to build the altar by myself, I hope Moses will come down. But after he finished building it, Moses still has not come down. So he announced, tomorrow shall be a feast to eternal. 
saying to himself, let the festivities be deferred until tomorrow. Thank you for that, Kara. The powers of procrastination. Procrastination is awesome, at least for Aaron. At least that, that's his goal here, right? Is that the people want to build the altar. It's like, yeah, no, 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 no. Let me do it myself. Because he knew that it would take him longer to do it. You know, it's like if you're building an Ikea piece of furniture, you get a couple of hands and it goes a little quicker. You know, you order some patio furniture, you know, and there's some assembly required. You know, it takes a little time. You get the, the Allen wrench going, you have to you know, make sure all the nuts and bolts are in the right place. So Aaron's like, you know what? I don't need any help. Let me do it myself. Knowing that it would take him longer to do it. You know, I myself, not very handy. It would take me a really long time to build an altar, one would presume. So it would take a while. Aaron, of course, you know, maybe has to stop off at Home Depot, like whatever it is. He has to get all the tools that he needs. And he's going to build. But it's going to take some time. And he's hoping, in, and while he's doing that, sort of going extra slow, then Moses, you know, then uh, his uh, younger brother's going to get down from the mountain here and help him out. Of course, it didn't work out that way, uh, you know, but it was a shot. Give it a little, take a little time. So after he builds it and Moses still isn't there, you know, again, Moses got to, you know, get it done a little faster. You know, it's a lot of stairs, a lot of steps I know, but you got to get moving. Uh, it didn't really work. So he says, you know what? Tomorrow, tomorrow we can have the party. Not today, tomorrow. You know, tomorrow you can have ice cream, not now. You know, we're, we're going to push it back a, a little further to, again, have a little bit of space, give give Moses a chance to get himself down uh, to the base of the mountain already, or at least in you know, some way the Israelites can actually see him. So he's trying his best. That's what really these texts are trying to say, that Aaron's trying his best. Okay, it's not easy. Leadership isn't easy, as I'll talk about in a minute, you know, but it is, he's not in, a, in the best situation. And so while we can look at, from the biblical perspective, Aaron being complicit, uh, because Aaron doesn't put up, at least with the actual plain sense of the text, much of a fight. You want a calf? I'll give you a calf. You want an altar? I'll build an altar. You know, and now we're going to have this uh, bachanal, you know, uh, the next day. Aaron's like, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, he's not putting up much of a fight. But according to these Midrashim, these different interpretations, the rabbis are saying, you know what? Let's think for a second. You know, like Aaron's not in the best spot here. He's by himself. You know, the people are getting crazy. It's been a very long few hundred years of, of slavery. The people are feeling a little bit wound up. So what's Aaron going to do? He's afraid for his life, gives him an excuse, you know, or in these last two, trying to create circumstances where this thing will not be done expeditiously, that it is going to be a long lasting, uh, 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 it's going to take a long time to wait for Moses to get down because he really, truly doesn't want to do this. And so he's trying his best, but was his best good enough? And I think that's the question, right? When, when we look at Aaron and say, okay, well, you are a high-ranking official, let's say, you know, you are going to be the high priest. You're, at, you're in a position of power and authority. Could he have done more? Should he have done more? Like, what was in his purview to do in this moment in time? And so we're going to conclude with this thought about the responsibility 
of leadership, of being a leader. And we have this great text from Rabbi Samuel Bar Nachmani, uh, who says that it's natural that people should imitate their leaders. How so? So the patriarch, the patriarch in this case, not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, the patriarch is the one who's sort of heading up the rabbinical councils, you know, that the, he's the, the sort of the one in charge of the different schools uh, of thought during the rabbinic period that you have a patriarch. Uh, so that the patriarch says, it's okay, you know, gives permission to do what is forbidden in the Torah, then the next person down on the list, the chief of the court's going to say, hey, if the patriarch says it's awesome, why should I forbid it? Then the, the next rung down, the justices you know, of the court sort of say, hey, if the chief of the court has given us permission, why should we forbid it? And then all the people will say, hey, if the justices have given permission, shall we consider it forbidden? And so it just goes down like that by, by different strata. Uh, and that if we see our leadership doing things that we maybe once thought were unsavory uh, or uh, illegal, forbidden, prohibited, if we see them doing it, they can do it, we can do it. I mean, they're the leaders, you know, and we're following their example. They are the, the ones in charge. And if they say it's okay, maybe it's okay for everybody. And so the, he finishes, it's clear the initial sin or transgression of, uh, transgression of the patriarch, it caused the entire generation to be sinful. And so I think that's a really important idea that part of leadership, I, think, I would think a big part of leadership is setting a good example, right? You know, that if we want to be seen as leaders of a community, what we do matters, what we do impacts other people, you know, whether it's rabbis, whether it's teachers, whether it's elected uh, officials, you know, we can go have the sort of list go on and on. How we behave matters. And, and you know, when people look at us, and it's even true in families, you know, grandfathers, father, you know, you know, parents, I should say, you know, um, people look at us, you know, our, our, our grandkids look at us, our, our, our kids look at us, our siblings, whatever it might be. And if we're doing the wrong thing, it can influence their behavior as well. So it really is an awesome responsibility. And it, again, I think anyone can sort of relate to it, you know, that how we behave matters, you know, but not only for our own sense of morality, you know, spirituality, ethics, but who we influence, you know, when people see us in public uh, and they, and I've always felt, you know, that, you know, for the Jewish community in particular, uh, you know, that when we're out there in the world, you know, that and when we have our, our kippah on, our Jewish jewelry or whatever it might be, when we're, sort of, when we're sort of more defiable in the community as Jews, we need to think about it before we yell at the bag boy at Publix. You know, it's like we need to know, you know, sort of that we're being viewed in a way. And, and it's not, I'm not saying it's a good thing, by the way, I want to be clear. I'm just saying that how we act in the world, how we behave matters, and it can influence how other people view us and how we influence others and, and, and how, how they go about thinking it. And so if the rabbi uh, says pork chops are awesome, then the people go, yay, it's great for everybody. That's a very silly example comparatively. Here we're talking about sort of greater matters of, I think, ethics uh, and morality, you know, that if we if our leaders do not adhere to any kind of higher ethical standard, moral code, 
whatever it is, it could allow for uh, not the best results. Uh, and I think we might be, dare I say, seeing that a little bit in our modern political discourse, uh, that when our uh, leaders sort of give up any kind of, um, what should I, how should I say this? When, when things become acceptable in, in certain discourses, it influences the rest of our community uh, in a not so great way, I would say. Uh, and so I think it is incumbent upon them, us, all of us to sort of behave in a way, act in a way uh, that would make people look at us, you know, in a positive light, you know, that we should be acting in a way to influence people for the good uh, and not for the bad. So it's a responsibility that I think Aaron sort of blew. He did not uh, sort of get it done in that way. Uh, and it really did create a negative situation, though, again, to be fair to Aaron, there were other contributing factors. But as a leader and as a moral voice, I think it was um, incumbent on him to really stand up and say no uh, and find a way of avoiding this calamitous situation. Uh, so I'm going to just pause right there. Uh, as I see, it is 1156. Uh, and I will see if anyone has any questions, comments, thoughts, parables, limericks, uh, anything they'd like to share at this moment in time. Just to say, Yasha Koach, and it was a very, uh, uh, I like your style, where it was very entertaining. Oh, and very, you're very entertaining, and uh, but you learn something also. Oh, I have a question, so Rabbi Hill. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi, uh, yeah. in a way, Aaron gets punished terribly for his what he did. Yeah. Yep. That is correct. According to the uh, Midrashic tradition, you know, another one of our rabbinic interpretations, his sons, uh, his eldest two, Nadav and Avihu, uh, are um are are killed uh you know for for this sin that is one interpretation of why uh you know those two sons uh, were were destroyed uh you know by uh, the, that heavenly fire was that was the uh retroactive punishment so it wasn't about Nadav and Avihu about what they did it was about what Aaron did and so that is another linking of um the idea of, of Aaron being responsible The sins of the father. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, by the time we get to the prophets, they do away with a, with a lot of that. In, in, in the Torah, we have it. But in the prophets, they say, we're not going to, God doesn't work that way. Uh, that, that everyone is responsible for their own transgressions. Where in the Torah, we have the idea that uh, what the parents do, you know, their, their kids can be punished for and vice versa, that the sins of the kids can be visited upon the parents. Uh, but thankfully, again, as I said to the prophets, we do away with some of that yucky theology. Could it be, could it be interpreted that, um, so Aaron was trying to stall. So he's saying, give me all your gold because we're going to not necessarily create a calf as an idol, but create an offering. I don't know how I'm trying to, I'm trying to think this through to make Aaron not such a bad guy. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think Aaron's trying to give it a shot. You know, like I, I think that people don't want to part with their gold, right? Like people don't want to part with their, their valuables. They're just out of Egypt, you know? And so, you know, they have some, uh, some, some, 
property that they took out of Egypt. Uh, but no one but wants to give it up. all together for the good for the good of the community, a community trust. But that that's what comes later. So to, that that's the whole thing is that when we get to the Mishkan, you know, everyone's offering, everyone's offering to uh, contribute, right, to, to creating this tabernacle, this uh, this sacred space. And so that's the dichotomy, you know, between the golden calf where it's take these earrings out of your, take everything off, you know, and throw it in the pile. Whereas in the Mishkan, it's a give. Whoever's heart moves them, give to, to, the, to the Mishkan. So this was, I think, more of a, and maybe again, it's what Aaron was trying to do to make it feel less good to make it feel sort of less savory in a way where mm -hmm. it's a take rather than an ask uh and i mean people go no i don't want to give my gold to this michigas thing you know like i got kids to, i gotta send that, my kids to college later i'm not gonna blow all the money on uh on whatever it is i couldn't think of an example uh you know fast enough but you know on, on the new 100 inch you know lcd tv you know i have to we have to save Give me your your uh, Tesla and, uh, <laughs> and contribute it to the temple. The rabbi needs a better car. You know, like, like that's not coming. You know, like people don't, don't want to do that. So, you know, you know, give an offering, right? You know, give an offering to whatever it is. If it's a good cause, people will give. And I think Aaron was, was trying to basically go, this is a bad cause. So let's see if, you know, if we make it, um, cause again, it's, it's sort of his idea, right? You know, this whole calf really is his idea that they, because they say, build us something, you know, give us something to do. And Aaron sort of like has the energy for it, you know, to create this thing, but he doesn't want to, I, I would like to think that he was very reluctant is what I'm trying to say. I'd like to think that this was not something he was going for, at least enthusiastically. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi. This was great. And thank you all for participating and joining us. Um, have a wonderful Shabbat. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat, Shabbat shalom. shalom. Great studying with you all. Have a great day. Yasha Yasha Thank you. Thank you. And we will thank meet you. again sooner than later. Okay. Take care. Stay well, everybody. Stay well. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Parsha Pathways. We hope that this episode filled your heart, mind, and soul with Jewish wisdom. Don't forget to stop by jewishgulfcoast.org to explore everything that the Federation has to offer. And we look forward to bringing you next week's Parsha. Shabbat Shalom.